privilege, um, all of us do, to hear a message from God's Word from Tom Howard. Uh, many of you know Tom and Cherie. Uh, they're long-standing members of West Cohasset. They have six children, two grandchildren, and Tom is our missionary chair and has been on a number of medical missions in many parts of the world. So I just thought it made sense that we would hear from Tom this way during this month of mission focus. So if we could, um, let's honor Tom and welcome him now. Come on. Good morning. I'm hooked up. All right. Thank you very much, Pastor and Dan and everything. It's just a pleasure to be here and give the opportunity to, uh, to do this, to bring this message. Uh, just a little brief introduction today. Today you're going to hear a very little bit of geography, in fact, right away. Uh, you're going to hear a little bit of English. You might feel like you're in English class today. You're going to hear a lot more Greek than I'm sure you're used to hearing. And I, and I love looking back at Greek because it makes you very precise in what's going on. But I hope that you hear that everything that I say, uh, the geography, the English, the Greek, and everything else uh, brings honor and glory to God and, and better understanding what God and what Jesus expects of us as Christians. So, starting out with geography a little bit. So in the summer of 2015... Uh, my family and I were driving through the San Joaquin Valley of Central California. They call the San Joaquin Valley the food box of America. Nearly one-eighth of the nation's agricultural production, monetarily speaking anyway, comes from that area. Almost all conceivable vegetables, fruit, nuts have been harvested with great success in that valley. It's a relatively small area of America, but a lot comes from that area. The stretch of the trip that we were going through that day was the southeastern part of the valley through many orange groves. During that time, I noticed directly across the highway from each other were two very different appearing groves. On the left was what appeared to be a recently harvested grove. I could hardly see any oranges on any of the trees. All the trees looked almost identical to each other. They were the same color. They were the same shape. They all had been trimmed almost straight flat on the sides and on the top like a crew cut. There weren't any debris between the trees at all. It gave me the impression that the owner of that grove had recently harvested those oranges, cleaned up after the harvest, trimmed the trees, making them ready for the next season. On the right side of the road was another grove of orange trees. The trees had an abundance of oranges on them. The trees were very different shapes and sizes because the weight of the oranges pulled the branches in different directions uh, and different angles towards the ground. The trees appeared to be much closer to each other because the, they were full of oranges and they hadn't been trimmed. There, was, there would appear to be weeds and the aisles between the groves. I, see, I didn't see any, any people in either of the groves. The grove on the left looked like it had already been tended to quite adequately. The grove on the right looked like it needed, badly needed to be uh, tended to. Although I'm no expert on harvesting oranges, it seemed plain to me that there was an abundance of oranges on those trees, badly in need of being harvested. So our text today is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. And I'll read that. It's in page uh, 687 in your church Bibles. 
So Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus is talking here about harvesting as well. But he isn't talking about harvesting oranges. The Greek word for harvest is therismos. And it's used in the Bible as the gathering of men into the kingdom of God. So what Christ is talking about here is the harvest of souls, not the harvest of oranges, right? So first, we'll notice, we'll see in verse 36 that, that Jesus saw the crowds, okay? So to participate in the harvest, like Jesus asked us to, we must first see what Jesus sees. To see uh, means to observe with your eyes, correct? However, it means more than that. The Greek word for, used for see or saw in this passage is eido, E-I-D-O. And that means to turn the eyes, the mind, the attention to anything. Basically, it means to pay attention with your eyes and in your mind to something. So we can't reach people. We can't participate in the harvest of souls if we don't see people. So what keeps us from seeing people at all? Or more importantly, uh, seeing what they need. So I was driving on Highway 2 from work, heading east from work uh, recently. And I was making a confession. I was, uh, on, while I was driving, I was uh, also talking on the phone with somebody. My car was set on cruise control at the speed limit. I'm sure you it was at the speed limit. And I slowly passed the car on the passing lane that was going slightly less than the speed limit. I continued my conversation for a while and decided to change lanes back to the right. But I quickly saw, as I was turning into the right, I saw a car suddenly in my rearview mirror. And I was startled, and I, uh, it was the same car that I had just passed, I thought, a long time ago, but it really hadn't been a long time ago. And uh, I veered left, and I sped up a little bit, and I crossed over back to the safely and didn't hit that car. So why did I almost hit that car? Okay, first, I was distracted uh, on the phone. I forgot about it being there. But the main reason I didn't see that car, because it was in my blind spot. The blind spots completely hide any object completely positioned within them from the driver's normal field of vision. While looking forward, we can see forward, we can use our rearview mirrors, we can use our peripheral vision. Anything outside of that is effectively invisible to our driver. So sometimes we don't see people around us who are needy or who are lost without Jesus because they are in our blind spot as well. We don't even think about them. We might see them, but we're not really picking, think, picking up what's going on. We might see the person, but we don't see their need. The car was there, but I didn't see it. We have to see something in order to harvest it. We have to see the orange in order to pick it. So we encounter blind spots in our spiritual lives as well. We don't notice the hurting around us. We rarely think about the loss in the world, oftentimes, making a confession as well. We are preoccupied like I was on the phone 
and the needy are essentially invisible to us like the car that I almost hit. The auto industry has done things to help us with blind spots. There are special mirrors you can buy to lessen the size of the blind spot or maybe eliminate it altogether. We need Jesus to do the same for us. We need his help to see the needy that we interact with every day. So I can give you countless examples of what Jesus sees that we may not see. Uh, but I think this is a good one. There are 7.4 billion people in the world today. Okay? Nearly 5 billion of those live in the so-called 1040 window of the northern Africa and Asia. Of those 5 billion people, nearly 3 billion of those are considered unreached. But unreached means, according to the Joshua Project, means, I'll quote here, they are without an indigenous, self-propagating Christian church movement. Any ethnic group without enough Christians to evangelize the rest of the nation is an unreached people group. Not only are these people unreached with the gospel, most, of the air, most people in this area of the 1040 window are the poorest of the world's poor. They exist on less than a few hundred dollars per person per year. It has been said that the poor are the lost and the lost are the poor. These people, many people in these areas and all over the world, will be born and live their life in poverty. If they're lucky to survive into adulthood, perhaps they might have a family. Then they will die and be taken from this earth, never having heard a clear presentation of Jesus. The cycle repeats itself over and over with their children and their children's children. So what I'm talking about here is a blind spot that can encompass 3 billion people if we're not really thinking about that. I'm not saying this to make any of us feel guilty, uh, only to highlight that Jesus sees each person's physical and spiritual needs perfectly, and we do not. I often don't see the people's needs that I interact with on a daily basis, or I don't think about them. Other things that affect our vision as we get older, is we might become farsighted, right? Many of us are farsighted in the middle ages. We see things better far away than we do near. Or the opposite, we might see things better close up than far away. What is true physically is also true spiritually. We might focus a lot on the plight of others far away and ignore the lost among us. When I've gone overseas and I just confronted with the physical needs and the spiritual needs that are just everywhere, it's easy to kind of think, oh, wow, I need to pay my, more attention to that and, and really ignore almost what's going on around here. Or we might uh, see the vast need around here and think that other people perhaps should care for the rest of the world. So when Jesus looks at the world, he isn't nearsighted or farsighted. He sees all spiritual and physical needs equally well. Jesus' field of vision doesn't have a blind spot. He not only is aware of all of the harassed and helpless, shepherdless souls on the planet, he knows their needs and he's moved by them. So you see, we don't need to, only need to be able to see what Jesus sees. We need to care like Jesus cares. So in verse 36, we see, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he had compassion on them. So I want to give you two definitions. As promised, I'm giving you English and Greek here, okay? So the first is English, uh, is the English word for compassion. So compassion, I'll read this, is the sympathetic consciousness 
for another person's distress together with the desire to alleviate it. I'll repeat that, I think, uh, for emphasis here. The sympathetic consciousness for another person's distress together with the desire to alleviate it. It's not just seeing with their eyes, as we said, what Ido is, or seeing with your eyes and paying attention in your mind the terrible plight of the people who are suffering. They are dying without knowing Jesus. It's not just seeing and thinking about those things, that they're terrible, but it's having the desire to do something about it. So another definition that I want to give you is the Greek word for compassion here. Uh, it's used here and 11 other times in the New Testament. And that word is splagnizomai, okay? S-P-L-A-G-C-H-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I. The first part of that word, to me, sounds like splanknik, which relates to the internal organs and contents of the abdominal cavity, your splanknik system. Okay, how's that? Okay, so hence the word in Greek, interesting, means to be moved as to one's bowels, not vowels, but bowels, and to have the bowels yearn. So uh, in the New Testament times, uh, the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. So you've ever felt something so intensely, something so moving, something you saw that with pity or sorrow or just, it just made you sick to your stomach? Okay, I think that's what the people of this time linked the deep sense of compassion with their gut. Okay? So we see that now what Jesus saw then connected to his, directly to his gut. We, we might call it he was connected to his heart. Okay? They thought it connected to his gut. So a helpful example, of, another example in the New Testament that uses the same words, aido and, and uh, splechnisomai, um, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 35, and I'll read that here. So uh, Jesus is saying this parable in response to a lawyer's question of Jesus of who his neighbor was, who was my neighbor. And Christ says, uh, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, or Levite, walked over and looked at the lamp, him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If, he, if, if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So it's interesting to note, as I mentioned, that the priest saw the wounded man and the Levite looked at the wounded traveler. The Greek word, as I mentioned, saw and looked, used here are the same word that used in Matthew. In the case of the priest and Levite, both saw the plight of the traveler. They perceived in their mind the plight of the traveler. But they both passed by to the other side of the road, doing nothing for him. Their eyes didn't connect to their gut. But like Jesus and our passage today in Matthew, the Good Samaritan 
When he saw the man, when he perceived with his, the plight of the man, he had compassion on him. He had spoken this on my unto the man, him. His gut was touched, and he acted on his desire to help. He had a sympathetic consciousness for the traveler's distress together with the desire to alleviate it. And I think he acted on that extremely thoroughly by getting the guy from there to the end, paying for all the, the details of his uh, rehabilitation. So what is Jesus seeing that elicits the deep sense of compassion that Christ is talking about here? He sees harassed and helpless multitudes, people that are like sheep without a shepherd. Interesting, in the King James Version, it's Jesus said Jesus was moved with compassion because they fainted. What he saw, they fainted and they were scattered abroad as sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word for fainted is ekluo, and it means to be enfeebled through exhaustion, to grow weary and to grow weak, to despond, to become faint-hearted. So these weak, weary, despondent, faint-hearted sheep, they're scattered, and they don't have a shepherd. So a shepherd in the Near East was actually a big job. I think of a shepherd, not a big deal to do that, but they, had a very, they were at a very big job and a lot of responsibilities, and I'll list these here. So the shepherd was responsible for the watching out for the enemies trying to attack the sheep. He was responsible for healing the wounded and sick sheep. He was funded for finding and saving lost and trapped sheep, uh, trapped sheep, caring for them and to try to earn their trust. So basically Christ had compassion on these people because they were powerless, they were exhausted, they were faint, they were weak. And they, they, had, they really had no way to get out of their predicament. They had no protection. They didn't have, they didn't have a shepherd. They didn't have any leadership. They didn't have really anybody who really cared for them. So we as Christians do have a shepherd, okay, who's watching over us. We might face persecution, but we're not abandoned. We, when we become weak, we have something, someone to strengthen us. When we are threatened, we have someone watching out for us. So we have learned that participating in the harvest requires us to see uh, what Jesus sees and to care or have compassion like Jesus cares. So lastly, we need to do what Jesus asks us to do. I'll read again in 37 and 38 of chapter 9. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So there's a saying, right? They don't just stand there and do something when you're faced with a big task to do, right? The job that needs to get done, you know, it's not going to get done until you get going on it, right? But what Jesus is saying here is, don't just do something, pray. Don't just jump into the harvest field, pray first. So Jesus talks a lot about prayer while he was on the earth, and he, and he modeled prayer on the earth by praying to God all the time, right? But this is the only time in the New Testament where actually Jesus gives a prayer request, okay? It's the only time he gives a prayer request. So what is he saying here, right? First of all, what is prayer? According to the International Study Bible Encyclopedia, it is a dialogue between God and people. 
especially his covenant people. So dialogue is what is essential to prayer. This is according to Dr. Randy Hatchett. He's a professor of Christianity at Houston Baptist University. And I'll quote Dr. Hatchett here. When God is seen as desiring to bless and he's sovereignly free to respond to persons, then prayer will be seen as dialogue with God. God will respond when we, fully, when we faithfully pursue this dialogue. Prayer will lead to a greater communion with God and a greater understanding of his will. So, do we dialogue? Do we want to have a dialogue or conversation with somebody who really doesn't want to respond to us? Or someone who really can't help us? Or maybe really doesn't want what's best for us? We do, however, want a dialogue with people who want to help us, who want what's best for us. And that, when you see God that way, you're going to want to go to God in dialogue and prayer. He's on your side. He listens to you. He loves you. He cares for you. And he wants to help you. He wants what's best for you. So, what part of speech is the word prayer? Okay? It could be a noun, a person, place, or thing, right? In Luke 1.13, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your noun, your thing. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Yet the idea of prayer in this passage and throughout the Bible is an action, right? Prayer is a verb. There are three Greek words expressing the action of prayer in the New Testament. Let's look at each briefly uh, to get a better understanding of what Jesus is asking us to do. The first uh, word for action of prayer in the Greek is prosukomai which means to pray to God, to supplicate, to worship, and to ask. So the idea of prosukamai prayer is that we enter into the presence of God to make our request known directly to Him. Our attention is drawn to the person we are praying, drawn to God more than to the request we're making. Praying to God gets our minds and attention directly towards Him. Being in His presence is of more importance than even the words spoken. Examples of prosukamai prayer, or praying, is found in Luke 5.16. But Jesus often withdrew to his lonely places and prayed. Another is Luke 9.29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The second word uh, in Greek for the verb, the action of prayer, is parakelo, P-A-R-A-K-E-L-O which means to call or bid to one side. So the idea of parakello prayer is to call or bid someone who has an equal level with you or someone who's beside you or near you. Our Lord Jesus is on par or equal to God, thereby he often addressed God in that, in that way. In Matthew twenty six fifty three, Jesus is saying, Do you think I cannot call or parakello by my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. In Mark 1.40, it says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged, or parakello him, begged Jesus on his, on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was near that man uh, with leprosy, and the man begged him and beseeched him to be healed. So the third Greek word for pray, and the one that used in our text, 
is deomai, D-E-O-M-A-I. And this is the verse, it's found in verse 38, where it says, ask the Lord, okay? That's deomai, deomai the Lord, the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into the harvest field. So what type of praying is a deomai prayer? It's deomai praying. So the, the Greek word, the root word of deomai means deo, D-E-O, means to bind, to tie, or to fasten. To bind, to tie, or to fasten. So the idea of deomai praying is to beg or petition God as binding oneself. It implies urgent need. You're gonna, when you get deomai prayer, you have an urgent need, a deep personal need. The need is so big that we beseech God. We make an earnest and specific request to God. Not only that, but we might also make that request while binding ourselves as an instrument to be used by God to get the prayer answered. So my opening story of the two orange groves, let's say that the owner of the unharvested field knew that he had an abundant harvest. He knew there was absolutely no way that he could harvest all those oranges by themselves. Because of that, he needs workers. So do you think that if he... If the need to harvest those oranges was so urgent and if he was able to successfully get workers to come into the field, do you think that he would then just go home and take a nap or go home, watch TV or whatever? I think that he's got an urgent need, he's got workers, he's going to be out in that field picking oranges as well. Or maybe not picking oranges, he'll be doing something as a supportive role to bring in those oranges. He remains a part of the solution uh, to the problem of bringing in the harvest field. Even after he got the workers there, he's binded to the task. He's fastened to the task. He's tied to the task. So Jesus specifically asks, what is he asking is, what does Jesus say to, to pray? What's his prayer request? He says to disciples, he says, ask disciples and us to pray that God would send out laborers, including ourselves, into the harvest field. Now, I think Dan's illustration today of Carlos is really appropriate. Carlos, the gentleman that, uh, the, from Guadalajara that went to Georgia, he identified a plentiful harvest of 395 family members back in Mexico. And he prayed. I believe he did a day on my type of praying to God to please do something about that need. Please send people to meet these needs of my family members, my, my loved ones, my friends. And guess what? God said, you're part of the answer, dude. And, and uh, he went. Um, now listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this sending out part. The Greek word here for send out is much more forcible than it seems. Sending out doesn't seem that forcible. Okay? It actually means, according to Spurgeon, it would, means that it would be push them forward or thrust them out. Okay? It's the same word. Uh, uh, it's called ekluo, E-K-L-U-O, uh, which is used as the expulsion of a devil from a man possessed. It takes great power to drive a devil out, it will take, this is according to, this is what, Dr. what Charles Spurgeon says, it takes great power to take, drive a devil out. It will need equal power to, from God to drive a minister out to his work. It took a while for Carlos to get the point, but God pushed him out across the border back to Guadalajara. 
So there is urgency. I said that these are, day my praying is an urgent prayer. And there is urgency in the sending and urgency in the doing. So why is this urgent? Okay. Because what are they doing? When they go to the harvest field, they're sharing good news, aren't they? And it's said, good news is only good news if we get it in time. Good news is only good news if we get it in time. So we can see from this passage that in order to participate in the harvest, we need to see what Jesus sees. He sees the deep uh, needs of all mankind. They are physical but they are more importantly, they're spiritual. Those without Christ are harassed and helpless. They're faint and scattered. They are helpless. They're leaderless. They're sheep uh, with no hope in the world. I've already mentioned a large part of the world population with, has no access to the gospel. Over 25% of the world does have access to the gospel, but would be severely per- persecuted if they accepted God's free gift of salvation. Many others have heard the gospel but are being deceived by Satan that the good news of salvation really isn't that big of a deal. We might think, or we all can think this, okay? But those without Christ can think that they can find fulfillment in, in pursuing what the world thinks is important. Or they might think Satan might deceive them that God doesn't exist. Or that really... Our, con- our, our actions on this earth really have no eternal consequences. Or, bluntly, uh, some people might think, I believe in God, and that gives me a free get-out-of-hell card that I can play at the end, and I can live my life like I want to the rest of the time. And there are lots of reasons that people without, are without a saving faith in Christ. And if you really think about it, all of those reasons are tragic. All of those reasons are heart-wrenching because it doesn't need to be that way. Jesus sees those needs with perfect vision. He's neither nearsighted nor farsighted. He has no blind spots in his field of vision. Not only that, Jesus doesn't just see the negative. Okay? He sees the positive. He sees that the harvest truly is plentiful. That's encouraging. Okay? We don't see that because we are nearsighted, I think. Millions of people are coming to Christ all over the globe. It may not seem that way looking from our society around us, but even here, God is drawing people to himself. The gospel is changing lives for eternity, even in our own backyard. Many people in this church can attest to that as well. Besides that, we need to care like Jesus cares. We need to be like the Good Samaritan, we need to see, to see what Jesus sees and make sure it connects to our gut. It needs to affect our gut. It needs to affect our heart. It needs to affect our actions. Sometimes we think the best way to motivate others is to make them feel guilty. Or perhaps the best way to tell someone some touching stories to get them to do something that they otherwise wouldn't want to do. Then that might be true sometimes. They might be effective means to motivate somebody. But that is not what Jesus is doing here, right? Jesus isn't giving them a pep talk to go to the lost. He's not laying a guilt trip on them. He's not telling them a sob story to get them off their couches into the harvest. He's giving them a prayer request. He knows that through a day of my prayer that 
Workers can be sent out, just like Carlos, uh, including the person praying, okay? The praying, the person doing the DMI prayer might just get sent out too. Uh, and not only will they be sent out, but he'll make them ready for the task. So in Colossians 1, 9 through 10, uh, I'll read that, those two verses. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. So this is an intercessory prayer. This is a prayer that, a prayer that Paul, the writer of Colossians, is praying for the readers, right? And the word for prayer here is the first one I mentioned is prosukomai. Paul, who's the author of Colossians, is coming into the presence of God. I'm going to go over the prosukomai praying. He goes into the presence of God. He expresses a wish. He's expressing his desire. He's speaking out. He's uttering aloud. He's asking God that God will give his readers what it takes. What's he asking for specifically? Knowledge of God's will, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. He knows that once they are equipped with all of that, that they will be able to live a life worthy of the Lord and they may please God in every way. So going back to our definition for prayer, he's having a dialogue with God. This is Paul. He's expressing a request that God act in the lives of the Colossians and enable them to live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to God. The Colossians could not do that on their own. They needed God's help. They needed the work of the Holy Spirit in them to do that. So I want to close with a quote from David Platt uh, from his book, Radical. Prayer is the step that you and I are most likely to overlook and yet the one that is most dangerous for us to ignore. It is in the gospel we have seen the depth of our inadequacy and the extent of our inability to accomplish anything of eternal value apart from the power of God. We are planning, strategizing, and implementing people. Yet the radical obedience to Christ require that we be a praying people. So I want to close in prayer, and I'm going to do my best to do a day of my prayer here. And so we'll close in prayer and we'll be done. God, please help us to see what you see. Help us to see the opportunities to share your good news. Help us to see the needs that you see. Help us to truly care for the physical and spiritual needs of others, especially the lost. Touch our hearts in such a way that we want to do something about those needs. God, please motivate us to bring in the harvest of souls. Not only that, please enable us to do that because we cannot do that on our own. Amen.